1: Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. How are you this fine day? Oh, I'm excited. We have a professional on the show today who's going to talk about non-mainstream English speakers and composition teaching and the different perceptions And so we're just going to dive right in. Yeah, Dr. Gerard McClendon,
0: woo, woo, woo. He is awesome. Wait until you meet Dr. McClendon. He is the bomb.com. Do people even say that? I have to learn what people are saying these days.
1: uh, (laughs) And he is high energy, so be ready. I cannot wait. Dr. Gerard McClendon is an associate professor at Chicago State University. He's the author of X or Ask, the African-American Guide to Better English and the author of and editor of Donda's Rules, the scholarly works of Dr. Donda West, the mother of Kanye West. As the former TV host of Gerard McClendon Live, And the McClendon Report, he has earned an Emmy Award, the One Region Award, Associated Press Reward, and an NAACP Champion Award. He's a cancer survivor as well, and the Executive Director of the McClendon Scholarship Fund, and a board member of the Sheila A. Dow Foundation. Art of Culture Foundation, the Mid-America Club, and the National Association of Wabash Men. We will be talking to him in a, in a future time about how he was able to direct the anti-violence film, Forgiving Cain. So we will bookmark some of these conversations because I know he has a lot to tell us today is about mainstream English.
0: Yes, I am excited to talk to Gerard. I mean, there's just so many facets of his life that's remarkable. One thing that you mentioned, he is a cancer survivor. And actually, that's when I met Dr. McClendon years ago. He has used his voice since that time of recovery. And he has never stopped using his voice to educate and to improve how students learn and to heal a nation so he is a very he's just very powerful we're going to talk about ask or ask you know i have to remember that K. k x or ask the african-american guide to better english this book is really a must read for teachers and parents of african-american students i mean i would say even if you're an african-american business so used as a text and reference book for 42 school systems, the book explores how Blacks can improve their speaking and writing skills, avoiding educational and occupational exclusive and exploitation. Why do many Blacks say Fena, Scrimps, Axe, Scrape, and fixin' to? That's hard, <laughs> that's, that's hard to say. I love this book. And I think I still have the first edition that I love. It's an easy but very powerful read. I want to jump into something because I know in 2007 that you took on some flack, actually on national news, about this book. And I remember that Bill Cosby had some similar flack about his views especially when it came to parents how parents should be raising their children and one particular time you gave a presentation at Aquinas Academy and you gave this lesson you remember this Gerard? yes
2: yes it was on it was on a uh, CNN and Fox News too <laughs> yeah
0: yeah so and I remember this in real time when it occurred and you gave this lesson on X or ask. And to see those students go through this, and and it was important to them. And to point that out, they, they didn't even realize, like, I'm struggling to say it wrong. They're struggling to say it correctly. And you're saying, put that K on the end. You said that we're losing children due to bad language. And you said that the language, it wasn't deviant. You weren't saying that the language was deviant behavior. But it was how it was being viewed and the barriers that it presented for blacks who were speaking. Yes. What kind of language would you call it? Bad English or Ebonics, if you would say, or what does it refer to now as AVE?
2: Mainstream appropriated. I mean, you know, we're in a situation where and we have been for quite some time where language It just needs to be understood by the listener. You know, there's an encoder and there's a decoder, right? What becomes problematic is when people place perception and expectation on language. So, for instance, if I'm wearing a sweatsuit and I get on the elevator in my building and I've got a hat on, and some sunglasses, okay? Even though everyone in my building, they know who I am, if I've got on a sweatsuit, some glasses and a hat, I'm going to be looked upon as strange, peculiar, bizarre, deviant, until I take the glasses off and people say, oh, it's just Gerard. See, I'm not given the benefit of the doubt because of my color of skin, uh, because of my grade of hair, had an interest, interesting situation the other day. I was picking up some food from an establishment and I had on some, some um, gym shoes and blue jeans and uh, uh, what else did I have? I had on a hoodie, okay? And so I noticed that everyone had, it's the only, it's the look that you get when you know that you're being either discriminated against or you're looked upon as someone that's deviant.
0: Right, exactly. actually, Dave Chappelle said the same thing. He lives in a small town in Ohio, I believe, and he said the same thing. He gets pulled over, and then they say, "Oh, that's Dave."
2: It's Dave. That's Dave. You know, and that's frustrating because even though it's "Oh, that's Dave," "Oh, that's Gerard," it's like, why wasn't I given the benefit of the doubt in the first place? And the same thing happens with language all the time. You know, as you mentioned, uh, Doctor Patterson, that one. Students said, no one ever taught us how to say the word ask. That just broke my heart because this person was in high school and they had never been taught something that simple. And when I asked the student, I said, can you say the word task, mask, and bask? They said the words perfectly. But when I asked them to say the word ask, they couldn't say it, even though ASK is in all of the words. (laughs) That was
0: amazing to me. And it it seems like we need to pick you up and duplicate you and put you in all these classrooms we can't, which is why you wrote the book so that we can because I wanted you to talk about the importance of teachers actually correcting, or what do you do when your students are speaking this way? And just to offshoot with that, my husband, he retired last year, and he was one of very few African-American teachers in his school. He was the only black male teacher in his school that was now about 75% African-American. And so they relied on him to correct behavior and to say things to the students that they felt like they could not say. Mm. So if your pants were sagging or if your hair was looking this kind of way, or you were doing this, They relied on him. Can you say this to them? Can you go talk to them? So the same thing is with language. Why don't you think that teachers correct English for Black children?
2: They don't correct it because it's directly affiliated with their identity. And teachers do not want to crush a student's identity, especially in a learning setting, in a setting where their schooling taking place. That's the difficult part. It's easy to correct a child's math problem. Uh, It's easy to correct the child's uh, science problem. But when it comes to language, that's directly tied to the individual and their family and their history and their ancestry and their Culture and heritage. And when you start to correct people's culture and heritage, now that's problematic. This is why code switching is so important able to move in and out of situations, able to read a situation, knowing what the language might be in a certain situation, and then adapting to it. It's not selling out, it's gaining clout, it's understanding the situation, the terrain. In the winter, you put on snow tires. Why? Because they get better traction. It doesn't mean that you hate the tires that you use in the summer. It just means that you appropriate, right? You're going to have snow on the ground. Therefore you put on a tire that gets better tread, better traction. It's the same with language.
0: So teachers need to know how to grade, right? And how to, so teachers, so this is a skill for teachers to know too. (sighs) You remember back with Oakland, California, where they actually passed Ebonics to be an official language. And actually they paid teachers more if they learned the dialect of what was called Ebonics, now called what African-American vernacular English or Black English vernacular, right. if they actually learn the language, similar to teaching students of another language. Because I was a bilingual teacher back in the day and I had to learn content
1: mm-hmm
0: versus language, the difference of where they put adjectives and adverbs and giving credit for content, but at the same time, correcting the language. Right. And right. and it takes some finesse in doing that, as you say, not to rip apart the culture, but at the <laughs> same time, teach you the way you were teaching them, this is proper English. And I guess you're saying you don't have to stop using that language that you're comfortable with, right? But know when and where to use it appropriately.
2: Right, I didn't wear pajamas to this interview. I'd be disrespecting Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy, right? I I wouldn't do that. I'm wearing appropriate attire for this occasion. That doesn't mean that I couldn't have worn pajamas, all right, but if I would have worn pajamas during this interview, Or if I had a bathrobe on during this interview, the two of you would have said, wait a minute, we thought he was going to dress appropriately. All right. And so, To avoid being corrected, I put on a sport coat, right? (laughs) I put on a decent shirt, right? And this is what we have to do with language. But at the same time, you have to value the student's home language. Maya Angelou said it best. She said, you cannot teach Black English. You can only learn it. (laughs) But with mainstream American English, it can be taught and learned. It's really very easy to use mainstream English. uh, But if students aren't checked at an early enough age, it just becomes more and more difficult, especially when they start to read works of fiction where mainstream English isn't used at all. I mean, if you're reading, you know, Of Mice and Man, if you're reading Steinbeck, if you're reading, you know, Sound and Fury, if you're reading Huckleberry Finn, you're not reading mainstream English. So a child is like, okay, you're correcting my English, but you're making me read fiction that doesn't have correct English. That doesn't make sense, Mr. Or Miss Teacher. And so this is why being able to explain this to students is hard. It's also hard to operationalize or even place mainstream English in a rubric because the English language changes. It evolves every day. You look at a term like fleek, F-L-E-E-K. This is a term that's become mainstream. It's used all over the word now. You know, my hair, my nails, my eyebrows are on fleek. It means they look nice. It means they look amazing. I just got them done that term was used by a young lady on youtube several years ago she never got paid for it she never got the chance to copyright the term everyone called her ghetto on youtube at first until mainstream entertainers started using the word and then politicians started using the word and then it became acceptable
0: I was just looking for <laughs> a word earlier today, Amy, right? And now I have a word that now I can use. So, Amy, as an English teacher, wh- what do you think about this topic?
1: I love the evolution of language. I embrace it. I love finding new words. We have a dry erase board on the refrigerator that I add words to that just really catch my attention. And I don't know that anyone else in the house reads them, but it's nice to say that I'm doing it. But I want to go, you know, we were talking about language, you were talking about code switching and I get it. I know it's important, but on the review, one review of the book, Acts or Ask, the African American Guide to Better English. One review noted that if the book had said standard instead of better, it would have received Far fewer critiques. People were, you know, a few slams. A few people were like, this is great. But one made that comment. So what are your thoughts on standard versus better English and dialects? Well, where do we even begin this conversation?
2: Six on one side, half a dozen on the other. Standard, better. Whether you use either of those terms, I chose to use the term better. Whether you use either of those, it's still equating it or looking at the English that you use juxtaposed to the language that's perceived and expected by society. All right. So I'm in a job interview. I didn't think someone was acting correctly. Man, homegirl was ill and from jump street. Okay. If the listener of that sentence doesn't understand me, and feels offended by the language that I use at that moment, I've totally failed in my attempt to trying to get that particular job opportunity because I chose not to appropriate. Uh, Gerard, that's not right. You're selling out. A person should be able to speak any way they want to speak. Well, you know what? A chameleon can change color to avoid being prey or to be a predator. And so what we do is we adapt to the situation. It's really
0: adapting. And and I'm checking out your maker space. I don't know if you know that term, but I'm checking out your maker space back there. And you have adapted to this virtual
1: world because I love that space behind you.
2: Yeah, this is my virtual classroom. I I
1: I love it. I want to go back to that interview scenario that you were talking about. How do we be authentic in our language without being judged? And we, the universal we, or my students, how can we tell them, you be authentic, you embrace your your identity, but don't let yourself be judged for it? How do we do that?
2: Authenticity is defined from within, not without. And so sometimes sometimes a person will appear to be authentic when the reality is they're trying to please people outside of them. There's a way to balance it. I'm not sure if that's if that can be taught. This is something my parents taught me at an early age. I'm not sure if that's something that can be taught in a school setting in a more intimate setting of friends acquaintances, family members, little bit easier to teach because people are, are more willing to accept that particular criticism or that advice. But in a school setting, it's a little bit difficult because you may offend someone. Authenticity, you have to be able to understand the lay of the land in an interview situation or in an academic situation. I know that when I first meet a person, what I'm doing is, and actors are very good at this, it's called mimicry. I'm listening to their speech, their dialect, their accent. I'm listening to the way they pronounce certain words. I know in about the first four or five sentences that that person uses, I pretty much know where they come from, possibly the income, possibly the uh, whether they're from the Great Midwest, whether they're from the South, if they're from the East Coast, if they're from Boston, there's a ka, wa, over there. I, I, I'm getting a good feel of who this person is by the language they use. That doesn't mean I immediately start talking like them or patronizing them. It just means that I understand them once they know that I understand them, I can relax my language and we can have a conversation because what's what's communication for? It's to be understood and it's to understand. That's the whole
0: point. And I agree. And I think that that's really taking the temperature of any situation. And it's not just language, it's also attitudes and feeling your way and taking the temperature before you dive in to something. And, and I'm very aware of my environment all the time, especially if it's a new environment, ease in there, take that temperature and just feel things out first. So can you tell me when you're having these conversations and I know you've been all over the country having these conversations, is your message different when you're in front of a group of white teachers versus black teachers?
2: No. So what is
0: the, it's no no different. No,
2: the message is no different. The way I communicate the message may be different, but the message itself doesn't change. The messenger doesn't change, my, me, and the message doesn't change. If I get a feel for the room, then I start to see how I can navigate. I may have to use certain examples that are a little bit more explicit in an audience that doesn't really understand Black English or Ebonics or African-American vernacular English, uh, whereas an audience that understands Ebonics, there are certain things I don't have to explain. I could say five minutes on my lecture uh, because I don't have to explain those things. But as far as the message is concerned, no, there's no difference whatsoever.
0: So when someone invites you, and Gerard, we want you to come to our school, what is it that they're saying to you? Why are they inviting you?
2: To convey the essence and the power of code switching, able to adapt to a situation as it pertains to communication, linguistic adaptation, the adaptation of pronunciation. How do you pronounce words? That's what they're looking for. They're looking for me to be the pillow (laughs) that makes a very difficult situation soft. I do it with humor, uh, I do it with examples, and I poke fun at myself times in my life when I may have made a mistake in language and it cost me an opportunity. This happens every day to people. There are people who are counted out of job opportunities because of the way they pronounce words. Now that's shallow, isn't it? That's the, isn't it shallow for an employer to say we're going to dismiss you because you didn't pronounce one word correctly during the interview? It may be shallow, but it's real.
0: It's real. I mean, it's, it's real. as real as what you name your child, there we and, go. and based on that name, maybe your maybe that person doesn't get an interview.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We saw this happen during the Trayvon Martin court hearings with Zimmerman when Zimmerman was in court. And Trayvon Martin, God rest his soul, had a friend who he was talking to on the phone while George Zimmerman was stalking him. So he's talking to his friend on the phone. Now, this is the one witness we have in the Trayvon Martin case. They brought that young lady, Trayvon's friend, into the courtroom. They did not show her how to code switch and the lawyers beat her over the head because of the way she pronounced words. And they made her look like a witness that wasn't credible just because of dialect. Watch the trial. It's, they skewered her. It was horrible. If someone could have said, young lady, there's nothing wrong with your language. However, your friend was murdered. And there are some ways that you probably need to pronounce words so that the jury and so that the lawyers and the judge will believe you. It never happened.
0: Right, because it can become a distraction.
2: Yep.
0: Where we lose the message because of the messenger. We see that today now, but it can become a distraction. I want to talk about African-Americans still having this huge achievement gap and the lowest standardized test scores, how this plays into that.
2: Mm-hmm. This may be two, three, maybe even fourfold. One, we have to have more African-centered curriculum in schools. And I'm not talking about Pan-Africanism, I'm not talking about just Egyptian or Eboo. I'm not talking about just Ghanaian. I'm talking about a curriculum that values this color of skin, we don't see it. Look at the textbooks, American history, sophomore class, slavery, half a chapter. The United States was built on chattel slavery and it gets half a chapter in an American history book. And when they talk about slavery, they talk about slaves and they're not people aren't slaves. People are enslaved. See, all of this is in the language. Do we know the names of these enslaved people? History is only told by who? The powerful. What about learning history from people who aren't powerful, from people who are female, from people who are LGBTQ? Wouldn't it be amazing to to read an American history textbook by an 85 or 95-year-old Black woman? Wouldn't that be amazing? That would be amazing. But you don't see it. You don't see it because the publishing companies aren't interested and they have a greater agenda. And the greater agenda isn't always white supremacy. The greater agenda is making money. And to make money, you have to please those who are going to purchase your product. So an African-centered education is extremely important. We don't see it in American schools. We don't see education uplifted for those who are considered disenfranchised. Where are the textbooks written by women? Where are they? We need those textbooks. You know, I did this on Facebook last year. I said, I need you guys to name five scientists in the next five minutes. Five scientists. Everyone posted a male scientist. After that, I said, name, I said, name five male scientists, name two female scientists. It took people eight, nine, ten minutes, and they probably Googled those female scientists to find out who they were. See, this is built into the fabric of American culture. When you leave out people in history books, math, science, language, you're leaving out large aspects of the country and children get turned off by that because they see it in the textbooks.
0: That is so true. And this conversation can go so many ways because we're also having conversations about teacher shortage especially with African-American teachers where there's only 7% of the teaching population are African-American and they do not want to teach. And I can surmise that they do not want to teach is because of what they see in their own classrooms. Mm -hmm. So it's nothing that they want to aspire to be. Back in the day for me, I never had an African-American teacher. I had finished my first graduate degree Already, and still never had an African American teacher. Mm. So it's not something that I could see. And now that you do have some in the classroom, the students are not liking what they see from the salary to the stress. It's not a popular job, and somehow we have to change that. And I want to talk about do you see this getting better or worse? And how does popular mainstream play a role? Because I do think in some ways where you have literary geniuses like Kanye West and Mm -hmm. Common and people like that, whose mothers were English teachers, Mm -hmm. they're genius and even Tupac and they're genius and people have grabbed onto them. And like, do they just see them as being different because they are successful? Does that help open up things? How do you see that?
2: Culture changes everything. If, Gerard McClendon, if Dr. Amy, if Dr. Joy, if the three of us start preaching to young people about what they should do, we will fail miserably. But we could take our messages, the Dr. Gerard, Dr. Joy, Dr. Amy message, and give it to a 25-year-old who's popular and Everyone under 25 years years old will devour that message. That's, That's baked into the culture. That has nothing to do really with the content. The content is the content, but who's delivering the content? That's always the question. When you change the fabric and the landscape of culture, that's when change can occur. But, but everyone tries to say, well, this is logical. Therefore, everyone should do this. Nah, you got to find somebody who's hip. You got to find somebody who is in the culture. You have to find someone who's respected in the culture to say it. And then people will gravitate towards it. It becomes magnetic and it becomes sticky and it becomes believable. Not because of the content, but because of the messenger.
1: We were talking about assessment, we are talking about these standardized task scores needs these gaps. Whenever you're grading, whenever you are thinking about this assignment that's being turned in, talk to us a little bit about that rubric weight. You know, we've got this rubric, we're like talking about content, did they, did they hit the mark? But where does grammar fit in? We still need to teach it. None of my college students can turn in anything that doesn't also have a row in the rubric about correctness. That's important. I want them to know that. What about that? Even for our K-12 and our university teachers, where does it fit?
2: I think it depends on the class. So if it's a creative writing class, they may have more liberty to use language they're accustomed to. However, the language still has to be understood by the reader. If they're in an English composition course that has hard rules, that's another story. That's a whole nother issue because the content may be good. The teacher reading the work may understand what the student is trying to say. However, if there are grammatical issues in the paper, those need to be pointed out, but they don't necessarily have to damage the grade. So, okay, your assignment, write a two and a half to three page composition on this topic. All right. I'm looking at the three pages. I'm looking at the content. It's making beautiful sense. It's flowing well. The grammar and the syntax is horrible, but it's making sense. I have to value the sense. I have to value the content of what they're trying to say. I have to show them how they could have done a better job mechanically to make the words and the content even more powerful and more understandable. That doesn't mean that I have to lower the grade because of that, but I do need to point it out to the student. I'm not a red pen, green pen, black pen type person. I taught high school English for 15 years, and in those days, I would use a green pen instead of a red psychologically. What I would do is I would compliment when they made a mistake, because if I compliment the mistake, they're more apt to listen to what I have to say. So you got a misplaced modifier. You have a run on sentence. You could have used a semicolon here instead of a period. So I'm showing them that, but I'm not just correcting it just to correct it. You're wrong. No, here's another way that may help you get your point across even better. All right. Now, there's a conversation. When you create a paper, it shouldn't just be given back to the student. And then the conversation ends. I can't believe Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy gave me a D minus on this paper. No, conversation doesn't end there. The conversation begins after you assess the work.
0: <laughs> Amy, I think that yeah. rubric is really, really important. And I That's think the fact tight. that you developed a rubric, you were very conscientious to say, I want to separate content from grammar.
1: I wanna follow up on when you said having a conversation with the students. You're talking on paper, but I'm also talking about those conversations in the classroom. Because whenever I'm talking to the student, And I have a lot of English language learners. They might Mm -hmm. have only been in the country a few years. And sometimes just talking to them, I can put a voice behind the words on the page. I actually can understand their writing better. If I've had that conversation with them in the classroom, I can put that face there. I can hear them talking and I can understand some errors that they're making that might be a misplaced modifier or a run-on sentence. But now we have online classes. Many students stay muted or have their video off. We don't see them talking. Or maybe it's an asynchronous class in the case of the college. How is this maybe positively or negatively affecting students in these interactions that we can have learning their language.
2: Yeah, that's tough, that's tough. That's tough because it takes more time to have that conversation, especially in an online setting. A whole nother issue, this is why teachers and professors need to be making double their income right now because of the the things that we have to do to adapt. Absolutely. The fact that I can't see my students face to face, I can't read the room, I can't feel. In an online class, people can't even interrupt. Because the microphones they kill one another. Whereas in a classroom, three people can be speaking at the same time, and you're feeling it. You're feeling the the heat of the room, and that that learning environment is so powerful because it's organic. In an online setting, you just have to work three, four times as hard. You know, uh, even though you're not getting more pay, you have to work hard. You, it may take more emails. It may take some instant messaging to students. Maybe you make the assignment shorter. I don't want three pages today. I want you to write one paragraph on the aesthetics of this coffee cup. All right. One paragraph. Now that if I grade that one paragraph and that student works hard on that one paragraph, that may be more valuable than me reading a three, four page paper that I can assess, but we never have a conversation.
0: <laughs> can I talk to you about your passion for a moment? Okay, because when I think Gerard McClendon, I think passion. And, yeah. and I think that most people remember that about you most. So specifically, I want to talk about your passion with English and the English language. I mm-hmm. talked earlier about, I think when I met you, you were actually recovering from throat cancer. Was it cancer of the throat, I believe?
2: Chest. Uh, of the chest. I, was, I the chest. chest, yep, but I had- and it, uh,
0: and it affected your speech.
2: Right, I lost my my left, my, my right vocal cord is paralyzed, correct.
0: Once you have recovered, you have just used your voice to advocate for learners and English. It feels like you believe that proper English saves lives, like teaching a man how to fish. It saves lives. Where did this passion come from? Where did this influence come from?
2: Several reinforcing periods over my lifetime. First with my parents, spelling bees from when I was real young. Uh, My mom coaching me through spelling bees. My dad having me to read, pronounce words in an old woolen sack reel-to-reel tape recorder. I had some amazing teachers in elementary school. I can still name them to this day. I mean, Mrs. Clofinstein, Mrs. Friels, Mrs. Delisle, Mrs. Martikian, these people, Mrs. Wandry, these people were amazing people in my life who at a very early age, they saw that I loved words. They said, this little guy loves words, you know, especially Miss Martikian in third grade at Wallace Elementary School in Hammond, Indiana. I tell you, they invested Time with me. My, I had a great middle school experience. My high school and college experiences were awesome. You know, I did speech and debate in high school and in college. So I'll never forget this. I get hired at Culver Military Academy to teach English courses and speech courses. So I spent five years at Culver Military Academy teaching. What happens? One day, I think it during my second year at Culver, I go into Cafe Max, this little diner in Culver, Indiana, uh, near Lake Max and Who do I see? Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut at the time owned property in Culver, Indiana, and his relatives lived in Culver and in Indianapolis. I, wow, this is emotional. I started a friendship with Kurt Vonnegut and we had the best time, the best conversations, but I've got letters from Kurt Vonnegut <laughs> from years ago. And I mean, he just meant the world to me. And he valued me. When I wrote Ax or Ask the African-American Guy to Better English, he wrote me a letter from New York. He said, You are the most courageous writer out there because the world is about to Crucify you.
0: It took a lot of courage. And, yeah. and I could just tell that you were mentored by some great people, such as your parents, we can't wait to have you back to talk specifically about Donda's rules because my husband was reading it and he was getting into it. And then he's like, What is this? Then yeah. he got upset. What is what is this?
2: That's the point. <laughs>
0: that's wait, the point that's that is not point. what i thought i was reading
2: yeah that's the point that's the point like,
0: wait till i see that gerard and, and rule. i said i think using it in the classroom with college students and especially mm-hmm. teacher education and english that, pro, you know i just, for
2: that's who it's for it's it's donna's rule 70 rules on how to teach composition in a courageous manner. That's who it's for. It's for teacher, it's for college professors to use as a textbook for teachers of education, specifically English composition teachers. Donda believed that you have to be fearless when you write a composition. It should wake up the reader. It should arrest them to the point where they're not thinking about anything else at that moment. She talked about the value of a sound then a word, then a sentence, then a paragraph. She talked about that power, and that's the beauty of Donda's rules. I mean, the, the woman was amazing. I mean, we'll talk more about her later, but I mean, she's Alexander Pushkin. She's a African-Russian scholar. She wrote curriculum for Chicago Public Schools. She wrote a business curriculum for freshmen on how to start a business. I mean, what she poured into her dissertation and her written works and into her son, a monumental, God rest her soul.
1: I think that the writers need to wake up as well. We want to engage our writers in the classroom with topics that they're passionate about. Before we leave today, I always like to ask. So in addition to the educators you mentioned, Tell us about some theorists or researchers or uh, some authors that you turn to most.
2: Mm, James Baldwin for his courage and fearless attitude to use a pen to move people's thought. The Fire Next Time, that's one of my favorite books by James Baldwin. Very, very short book, but deliberate fast and deliberate, fearless. Uh, Love that book. Currently, I don't have my Kindle around. Currently, I'm reading uh, a book called The Quit List by uh, Dr. Stanley Robertson. I read some Bradbury from time to time. I always read classics each year as well. So of Mice and Men and Huckleberry Fan. Those are two of my, my favorites. Be- those books had a serious influence on me in my sophomore year in high school. And so I try to revisit those books because they're totally different books now that I'm a grown man, you know, and they mean much more to me. But that's what's on my list right now. Pleasurable reading, I'm a huge Terry McMillan fan. When I just want to kind of go off the deep end and enjoy what's going on in the mind of black women, I. Uh,
0: <laughs> so good job there so we're looking forward to talking to you about some future projects I want our listeners to really check you out you have a website check out his website Gerard McClendon you can google him you know you're at the top when you have a wikipedia Gerard McClendon has a wikipedia so learn more about Gerard McClendon it's like that's awesome how do you get a wikipedia it, it Just um, it
2: just it just means I'm old <laughs> <laughs>
0: That Bye. too. You can still get that book, Ask or Ask. Please check out Gerard McClendon. He's on a variety of outlets. He's really out there. You're making a difference, Gerard. We appreciate you taking the time chatting with us, but you are making a difference. And also next time, I really want to talk more about Black and Brown Boys. Yes. Some of the challenges we're still facing with academic achievement. We're looking forward to having you again. And again, thank you. Thank, thank you. you.
2: I, I appreciate it, Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy. Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice.
1: You said it. <laughs> thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson.
0: We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching.
1: We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory, probably, this time? Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.